my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I'm sat in the fascinating, almost museum-like office of carp historian and carp angling fanatic Chris Ball at his home in Hampshire's New Forest. All around the walls and cabinet tops are reminders of carp angling's past, including framed pictures of some of the greats such as Dick Walker with his groundbreaking catch of Clarissa. Plus, I should add, the actual Mark IV split cane cart rod used to catch that particular fish, which Chris has temporarily brought here out of storage for the day for me to look at and film. And would you believe, because this podcast was edited several weeks after the interview, that later that day when recounting the visit, I actually had two people wanting to shake the hand that had earlier that day held Dick Walker's legendary rod. Such is the esteem this man is held in, even now in May 2012. Anyway, down to the business at hand. Chris and I have just recorded an in-depth interview into the history of carp from the Middle Ages through to Clarissa to go out later as a separate entity. So can we now turn our attention to Chris Ball, the carp angler, and an angler with a particular passion, which in this case is surface fishing for carp. What is it then that has you placing your baits on the surface and holding the rod prime ready for action when others would prefer to sit back in a comfy chair, relaxing with the bite alarms on, waiting for a pickup off the lake bed? In a word, it's exciting. It's very exciting. Everything on the surface is exposed to you. Everything on the bottom isn't. We are reliant then on some kind of indication on the line on the surface if you get to a level of surface fishing you can occasionally because nothing is forever cast in stone in angling of course right you can believe it or not because you can see what's happening on the surface get in front of the very biggest fish in that swim i've had to at times not pull bait away from fish but resist casting until the biggest fish I can see in that area is A, take an interesting bait, and B, it's on its own, or I can watch it enough to get it on its own to get a bait to it. For instance, I don't know, I'm hundreds and thousands of carp down the line, and I, I want to, you know, a 20-pounder is still a fantastic fish, you know, I mean, there's no doubt about it, but you ought to try and get bigger ones all the time. The level of where I am in right now in floater fishing give you a for instance idea went to linear a couple of years ago on a, a nice day they arrived at eight o'clock in the morning i walked round six lakes in the process of clocking up several miles and i never cast once now i got fish feeding in some of the lakes none of them that i was interested in catching I made the first cast at 5 to 5 in the afternoon because I walked round Manor Farm Lake and there were five whackers just together, less than 20 yards out in the water. Didn't have my tackle with me at the time. I had a, a bag of floating trout pellets, a catapult, binoculars. It was hot, been walking, getting near the end of the day, but I suddenly found the big ones. I catapulted some floating trout pellets near them. It gradually came into the area where they were sunning themselves. One took an interest and then the attitude of the others changed and um, there were several bits taken. 
and they all looked big fish. I dropped everything, ran for the car, which wasn't far away. And uh, there was two sets of tackle set up, one with six-pound hook link and one with ten-pound hook link. The rod I picked up was the ten-pound hook link, which wasn't my cane rod. It was on a Jack Hilton fiberglass rod. Uh, still Mitchell reels, um, which I use for stalking, whether it's surface or bottom fishing, other than the centre pin, which I use as well. But um, it took two casts to get in front of that biggest one. Also, worth noting, again, which is often the case, biggest is also the greediest. He was charging around, trying to get bits. It only took two casts to get a bait cock on, that he was uh, he was up for it, and... Um, yeah, eventually uh, it came a 36 and a half pounder, so that was two casts made <laughs> that day, but I essentially had eight hours on, on the water. I could have caught, I'm sure, you know, some, some other fish during the day, but um, it was looking for them big ones. Back to the walker thing, find the fish. Don't scare them, you know, use a bait and all the rest of it. But... The surface thing, from the really little small places with floating crust that are all around the Surrey area, I can remember several of them, uh, not far from Cranley. Swallow Tiles was one, which uh, they love crust there, and eventually I caught the big one from there. I mean, say big one, it's 15 pounds, but in those days it was a big fish. Unbelievable places, like Navvy's Hole, how about that for a name of a place? where uh, I caught some of the better fish there, again on floating crust, because you could see them, hopefully get them to start feeding, and then hopefully lower their their senses to tackle, certainly floating line. I worked for a very, very long time on surface fishing on the fact that competitive feeding, if you could get a number of fish to a level where they were competitive, not casting, most people, when they go floater fishing, cast out and cut a pole half a dozen pouch loads of floating trout, some kind of floating bait around it. The last thing I do is cast, looking and putting bait out, gauging their reactions, seeing what size of fish are around, before I then sort of commit myself to making a cast to try and catch one. And it can happen where caution with end tackle is a bait that looks and behaves differently on the surface its ride height can be different because it's got a hook attached to it things like that i mean i played around with getting pop-up boilies obviously fashioned into a shape to whatever i was using at the time whether it be mixer or floating trout pellets but uh, then making up boilies that look the same but with a certain amount of buoyancy in which when you looked at them with the hook on the water they sat the same in the, in the because believe you me when fish are fish for on the surface that's where I'm particularly good where people can't catch them it's things like ride height that can make a difference but if you can get them competitively feeding generally tackle concerns go out the window for instance Raysbury I'm, I'm known for floater fishing at Raysbury and um, caught one of the biggest fish at the time from there and I over a three year period of creeping round miles and miles and miles of walking and looking and searching I caught six fish in those three years six carp in those three years one of them twice so five different fish 
and to catch those six fish my bait was in the water probably five or six minutes because I only ever cast when I got them feeding and I thought I was going to catch one including at the time you know a really big fish a, a, a 36 and a quarter pounder especially a place like Raysbury where you're chasing in a hundred acres 25 30 fish so it, it was quite difficult but I proved that you know from the largest inland sea such as places like that to the smallest little places like Navi's Hole if you applied the technique correctly you could catch them and in the 80s when it was really starting to take hold it appears very few people were willing to do this willing to adopt this uh, I'll give you a, a classic instance when I returned to Cup Mill in the 80s after being there all, all the way through the 60s so I rejoined the club I think in 84 something like that and though we started off boilie fishing I soon realised that loads of fish were floating around and I started uh, fishing for a little 9 foot fibreglass rod a little 301 reel 6 pound little links no snags or anywhere I'm in trees in the edge but no snags out in the water dozens and dozens and dozens of fish the thing was the thing that couldn't that I could never understand I mean there are times when I do stop I mean if I've caught 4 or 5 fish you know that's it do you want to have a go? I'm going to go. Especially when I've caught a big one, I've often walked away, which people find very strange. But loads and loads of anglers, not people, anglers, saw me catch these fish. I always remember people took pictures for me, helped me netting them. Do you want to get, oh, oh, I don't know if I've got the right rod. Uh, and I mean, I come back two days later, you know, and you put me for, no, I don't think so, I've been for you know put out some mixes and they're there it was an incredible period and including the, some of the big ones as well the 20 pounders that were there in the water i managed to catch virtually all of them and some of them sort of more than once so th that was an incredible period the oxford time at manor was fantastic floater fishing period as well i mean i've mentioned roy parsons earlier on i'll give you another classic roy Parsons gag. I arrived there one day and in a slightly different area to, uh, that I was mentioning before, not the Whitney Bank, but one at right angles to that bank. But well, the fish were well out, or cruising around well out, and I managed to get them to come a little bit close and starting to feed. Anyway, I hooked one and got it in, and um, nobody really around, so I rang Roy, come take a picture. It was a nice 20 pound of common carp. Anyway, I wanted some, because it was a lovely looking fish, I mean, I know they're all lovely looking, but this was a, another beautiful looking one. I thought, because I'm known for these pictures on the, on the map, let me just, I mean, these kind of shots I'm known for, yeah. So I'm messing about trying to get the camera saw in there, and Roy's standing by the water and says, for goodness sake, will you get your behind down here and get a bait out again, they're going garrity out here, you know. And so I went down and uh, Roy stood there with me. I just cast out. And she was in again. You know, ended up, I think, with a trio of 20 pounders, just like that. Another place uh, that uh, I'd never really seen surface fishing before. Way over in Essex called uh, Frining Fisheries, which is a beautiful, beautiful lake set in a lovely rolling, or that part of Essex, rolling kind of countryside, well away from main roads. 
and um, when the gates first opened I, I went over or got invited over there did a feature for carp talk for him to get the business up and off the ground and uh, yeah there was plenty of fish in there not particularly big ones but you know they grew and grew and grew and now they're monsters but then in the mid 90s uh, I was there one day and um, you get these exceptional conditions where though the fish are out of range not out of range they're a long cast from the bank with the wind coming over your shoulder the wind would hit the water 20 yards out and the ripple would continue just get a mixer to that line and then it would drift out you know and you could do the same with a hook bait with the controller cast out you feed the line out and you can gradually get it so you don't disturb the area you just drift into it naturally so hook baits coming in similar to the freebies right and uh, I'd done up until that stage I'd done 320s in sort of an afternoon twice before once I think at man, I might have done it well I might two or three times before the third one came ashore that afternoon at Friday Fisheries and then he came down Chris Knowles uh, the owner came down took a picture and I uh, cast it <laughs> I'm looking at my life, it's a long way from Frimley, where I lived at Frimley then, you know, and it's about six o'clock now, and I'm thinking, oh gee, you know, you've got the A13 or the A14, whatever it is, oh it's going to be murder. And of course, Chris has gone, look, they're still out there. All right, all right, all right. One more cast. Can you believe it? Almost straight away, there's a great fountain of water, like, and I'm in again. And in came the fourth 20-pounder. And earlier on, I'd caught a near-miss, like a 19-something. Uh, it was a five-fish catch, including four over 20. And to this day, so that is 12, 14 years ago, if I rung up Chris now, and I'll go over next month, but he floated fishing me from... No, mate, no. So from that point of view, it's been great for me the majority of the big fish I've caught the carp over 30 pound in this country though I have caught them on boilies but the majority of them uh, have come off the top and also a queer sort of quirky factor that often amuses people uh, as I often said years ago in an interview with Carp World when I go on a water with a cane rod and a Mitchell reel and a straw out and some kind of novelty act but the fact is, I do use cane. In fact, I'm the only person left in carp fishing ever. I'm saying, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think. I'm the only person to have a carbon rod and a split cane rod named after them. So there's the Insight carbon rods that Leslie's produced, the Crystal Signature rods, carbon fibre, and Sharps produce a Crystal all-rounder 11-foot cane carp rod so that's a a sort of something that's uh, unusual to me when I bottom fish living here in in the new forest gives me fantastic access to the uh, Stour and the River Avon and uh, since we've lived here 10 years now about six seven years ago I've had a concerted effort to catch the carp in the rivers which and I've had a lot of success quite a lot of success on the tidal stour and uh, of course then I wouldn't use split cane so I'm in a hostile country you're fishing to stanchions you're fishing all kinds of rubbish down the river and so um, 
I'm telling you the kind of finesse sometimes that I've adopted in surface fishing with six pound hook links and light rods and small reels and stuff like that to fishing to take no prisoners in the environment because you do you fish to the environment that you you find yourself in so it, I, <laughs> unbelievably I fish with 25 pound hook links 15 pound mainline and two and a half ounce lead but that's because the conditions sort of demand that so yeah the float of fishing goes on and on I managed to uh, most years to catch a sort of good number off the top and occasionally you know I bump into big one that's my first that first 30 pound common uh, UK common just a tremendous fish um, hooked two that day another a decent one I hooked which unfortunately I lost but it's those kind of pictures which uh, people seem to like with K-Rods uh, obviously a, a wooden catapult floating trout fellas that's a good little story quick quick this do with photo fishing this one you'll like in the mid 1990s edward barder um started a company producing probably some of the finest split cane rods in the world and did his training at hardy's he had a famous angling father a thoroughly all-round well-educated guy and i got to know him and i went to his um in a mill right on the Kennet beautiful workshop and he started producing rods all kinds of rods fly rods coarse rods carp rods and he used cruciates they produced the cruciates rods and so on and so forth I was there one day the business became uh, brisk that he employed somebody else who's still there now Colin Whitehouse another master rod builder wonderful uh, anything to do with floats and all ancillary equipment float cases magnificent and um, on the workshop bench was a wooden catapult and I said good grief look at that he said oh yeah yeah he said I just, you know just finished it we supply them to the local shop he said I only make about half a dozen a year something like that I think we got a couple here and the shop's got one or two I said uh, yeah expensive but people like anyway I took a sort of shine to it he's going well yeah yeah yeah, take it. Yeah, you know, no, 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 I don't want it for nothing. No, no. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do your review on it. Right? I'll do a review in Carp Talk because there's a certain faction of the membership, you know, do like the oldie worldy stuff. Or traditional, should I say, not oldie worldy. And uh, so I said, right, we'll do a deal. Yeah, I'll do a review. Thank you very much, Indy. So I took it out. I remember going to uh, Linear Fisheries within a day or so, and it wasn't uh, people coming up and saying, you caught anything yet, mister? It was, where'd you get a catapult? And the review appeared in Carp Talk on a Wednesday, a couple of weeks later. By ten past nine, he'd sold both of them in the workshop and then referred them to Thatcham Anglin or the local tackle shop, which sold by ten o'clock the remaining three. When I went back a month or so later, when I saw Colin, I walked in the workshop, Colin White, I said, ah, just a bloke. I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to give you anything ever again. And don't put it in the paper. <laughs> because the phone was ringing on and off for weeks on trying to get one of these catapults. And in fact, that's dated because um, he, he signed the dates, everything. That's 96, I do know that. So, yeah, yeah, it is a, a, quite a while ago thing is it's set up so it uses drenon feeder pulp elastic so just standard elastic it's not 
anything special but it's made out of several bits of wood and there's a strengthening piece of split cane down the middle oh it's a it's it's a work, work of art you know you that you'd inspect for somebody like that so from catching you know my first carp on crust in 1959 here we are can we now start to focus in on baits loose feed and feeding frequencies in the hope that armed with the right tactical knowledge you've just given us more carp anglers may actually follow your passionately argued example Right, baits. Um, early on, uh, as we mentioned, time honoured, everybody who's been in fishing for some considerable time will have, have used floating crust at some stage. Used to get special, uh, buying special loaves, sandwich loaves, let them go slightly stale, you know, to make the crust more durable. Often we would free line earlier on and to get the weight, you'd, the time modern method of dunking the crust quickly to get a little bit of extra range. Um, controller fishing, where you're using a, a weight to get out the bait, was something I started using in the early 80s. Gardner Tackle started importing the French Bonnard controllers, which are clear plastic with a tiny little red sight bob, but inside the plastic fits into the base was a weight, and obviously there was various weights that would give you, though they were in grams, they were equivalent to sort of, I don't know, a three-quarter ounce controller, you know, an ounce one, an ounce a quarter, so on and so forth, which would require a hook link, and the hook link would often be, I don't know, I'd use uh, maybe six foot, somewhere around about then. There would be a swivel on one end of which the controller would butt up against. The other side would either be a stop knot or a float stop because semi-fixing that controller would help no end in helping the hook the fish there was some kind of resistance and weight there the hooks um, were generally small the hooks obviously over the years have become much much better both in temper and design uh, where you can confidently use very very small hooks here to give you an idea mid 30 pounders have been caught on these very very small hooks uh, yeah, 36 and a quarter and 33 pound of both hooks I've used. Um, uh, so for the surface, uh, they're Drenham ones. There's a great many these days. Corda do, Corda do some good ones as well. So uh, semi-fixing is important as far as bait is concerned. In the 70s, the boily cake, or the floater cake as it became known, all you did was produce a boily mix and, and it would consist of components up to 10 ounces, a mix of 10 ounces, which would have some casings, some casamates, some vitamilo, some vitamins and minerals, whatever, together, mixed in with six eggs to produce a 10 ounce mix, which you roll into a bowl, eventually into sausage, cut them up, roll them into baits, put them in water to form a skin, and that was your boilie. Now, if you double the amount of eggs, still a 10 ounce mix, but put in a dozen eggs, then you produced a runny, sort of liquid and put into a flat pan you produced a in the oven after a while a floater cake i've got to tell you i wasn't that successful at making them i had many 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 goes at it but some of my friends always seem to produce better versions of floater cake obviously it's quite a time consuming thing to do and in the end sort of having three eighths of an inch or half inch square bits of floater cake which were that thick they were a, a durable version of floating crust but you could add a flavor to them of course 
wonderful flavours that I used early on were Mellow Brandy. I remember that being particularly good. That was by Jeff Kemp. It was, uh, trying to think, yeah, sort of those Swedish ones. Those flavours uh, uh, appear to be quite good. You couldn't mass bait up with it. That was the thing, because um, you produce a tray like that, you might have had, I don't know, 100, three-eighths of an inch baits and maybe 150. It was only the advent around 1983 of packeted pet foods that came to the fore and one came head and shoulders above anything else which was uh, manufactured by Pedigree Foods and it was Chum Mixer which was a preformed roundish biscuit to add to a supplement to dog's food with, with their meat to mix it up. This was cheap widely available and the carp loved it and here we have people like the late Chris Curry to thank for introducing me and many many other people to the idea of what was happening on the bottom with particle baits in other words masses of same size foods whether it be tiny bits of hemp or groats or sweet corn or whatever but doing that on the surface which chum mixer and and the cat foods meow mix are there's countless amounts of them and that produced you know mass hysteria on the surface which then led forward to maybe getting a good chance of hooking one or two of them i played around a lot with how because obviously it was too hard to mount directly on the hook we had the hair rig at the time and people played around with attaching them very very tightly to the hook which was fine it was fiddly you couldn't um if you did a hair rig or even a little bait band i'll come to bait bands a bit more in a minute because they're an integral part of this packeted pet food phenomena that happened but uh, yeah there were food. you could do it at home pre-drill them and and mount them on the hair but in a live situation i've done dvds filming i've done everything like that and written books about it but live on the bank fishing the last thing you need to be doing you know when they're at it out there bits come off or you cast in the trees and it, it come off you know and you're fiddling around trying to you need to get a bait on and get it back out there quick and um it was altogether fiddly until bait bands came around and then by doing a um, sort of around the shank and through itself pulling it so it fixed at the fulcrum point around the middle of the the shank these bait bands came in various uh, diameters you could slip easily that withstand the cast slip a um, a piece of mixer under there and a lot came to that then there was a period where clive williams who is a notable carp angler he's also a tackle agent has been for many years bought into this country i don't know whether they were uk manufactured or, or not but introduced the carp fishing world to cork balls, which have been used for a variety of things over the years. One of their main uses is to wrap boily paste around them and then boil them to produce a boiled bait, but obviously one that floated. Very much more reliable version of a pop-up boily, which is made out of ingredients that are light. And they're still very much around these days, cork ball uh, pop-ups. But the, in its raw state, and obviously these came in 10 millimetres, 12 millimetres or bigger in diameter, 
he gave me some. Yeah, have a go for that. And I looked and played around. I thought, the hell, you know, again, you can bore them through, you know, to put them on the hair ring. Sure was a way of mounting them on the hook until I came up with the idea. A, a sharp scalpel, you have to be careful, to make an incision to about half depth. And then you could manipulate the shank of the hook into the gap. And a little trick I came up with, which was even better, was that if you turn that slit to coincide with the direction of the eye, if you slipped it over the eye and then turned it, you locked it in position. Great, and cork balls um, a sort of turned a few people's eyes because the only time you ever lost it, you never needed to rebate. So you were always there for that opportune moment. Should a fish, nothing's out for 10 minutes, suddenly a couple of fish have shown. And of course, that's the time when you've got a bit of sod and mixer because you haven't cast for 10 minutes. It flies off, doesn't it? A sod's law happens. Uh, so for the instantaneous opportunist surface fishing, cork balls, uh, uh, also, they alleviated the ride height problem that I was mentioning. This is where fish have been consistently fish for on the surface. They're sometimes weary about how the height of the thing there. Hook links, I mean, just played about with all kinds of ones. I had a fantastic period in that cut mill period I was telling you about. It was sky blue fluorescent hook links. Now, tell me how mad is that? Terry Eustace of Gold Label Tackle gave me some of this and he said hey try this and I looked at it I don't know I mean it was very obvious on the surface from underneath I'll even admit to being in the bath you know in years gone past with goggles on and looking a bait from underneath you know crazy things like that and obviously the line as well so yeah that revolution of packeted pet foods and mass feeding on the surface created a stir within floater fishing and it encouraged for quite a time people to try their hand at, at surface fishing. Again I did a slideshow somewhere in Melton Mowbray or somewhere around there and in the break a fella came up to me, he's still a friend today, uh, first time I met him, introduced himself and he said um, I'd just like to say that uh, you're saying all this surface fishing, all this chum mixer because obviously it had formed part of the slideshow. He said, I'm due to retire soon. I've been at Pettigrew Foods for, I don't know, 25-odd years or whatever. And at one stage, I worked on the mixer production line. I said, come here, I want to shake your hand. <laughs> that was Roy Ecob, and he's, uh, he's still very much around now. Lovely chap, but yeah, that was that was funny. Maybe I should have taken out some shares in Pettigrew Foods. Good God, it... Um, I did write and talk an awful lot about it. Again, just carrying on from that, I suddenly realised that, of course, you could ring the changes quite easily because a mixer in particular would take a flavour and a colour very well. Formulated a, a little thing to make your own individual label of bait by, for instance, um, the freezer bags that you get, but they have to have a good seal on them. So a large... Iceland, I think I used it at one stage. Pound and a half dry weight of mixer in there. 160 millilitres of water. Put in a flavour, 10 mil of whatever. Put a colour in there as well. Don't put, especially powdered colour, don't put the colour in the bag because uh, when you add the liquid, because you need to blow it up and make air inside, you'll come out with lips like Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so always put the colour into the, into the liquid. Shake it all up. 
place it into there, seal the bag, making sure it's a big air, and then rotate it. The inside of the bag will go, you know, if it's red, it'll go a red colour, and then leave it five minutes, pick it up again, and after ten minutes, it gets absorbed in there. You can freeze it, so you can bring out a packet. A pound and a half would last me an afternoon, quite easy. This is when I went on to uh, seafood flavours. Very good. Let me think. Lobster Thermidor from Hutchinson was a good one. Uh, Richworth did oils as well, fish oils, which were good. One of the advantages that I found as we went on to trout, floating trout pellets after the whole um, pet food thing was that the very oily 12 or 14 mil floating trout pellets and a ripple it would go flat in the area you're fishing where the bait is you could see your hook bait or ascertain where your hook bait was far better than in a ripple and obviously there was a massive attraction zone around there it would rise and fall that oil that came off it so we went on to floating trout pellets which is still now the mainstay that I use these days, again widely available, and optically expensive, and in the car at all times of the year, I've got a five litre tub full of them in there. I've got a bag, a floater bag anyway that I use, but I have a backup in there that ever comes out and I ever get taken short. You know, suddenly arrive at a fishery to, I don't know, creep round with a worm on the float at the edge, and suddenly they're floating around the top. It's nothing to get another rod out of the car, but make sure that I never leave the mixer. Good story to show that in action. In 1983, in January, I went to Cut Mill to fish, and when I arrived there that day, I couldn't believe it. The place was bloody frozen. I thought, well, I thought it unlikely that it'd be frozen. I thought, oh, gee, and it was everywhere. There were some silver birches in the water and it was bright, so, you know, crisp and bright and cold. And uh, the sun was shining in this whole bank and where these silver birches are in the water, the ice had just come up to the fringes there and it left, I don't know, an area perhaps the size of the kitchen. Free. And when I looked in there, gee, there was some dark shapes floating around. So uh, I shot, I raced all the way back up that, uh, people that know Cup Mill know that sandy slope. I ran all the way back up there to the car, came back with some mixer, threw it in, and one fish in particular was up. A good one. It was there. Gee. Right, so when I always got in the boot of the car, the little floater rod, this is in the depths of winter when it's frozen, came back down, got a bait in front of this fish, and got it out. And it was a 20-pounder. And 95% of the lake was frozen. And this one little there, and uh, I've got pictures of it and what have you. You know, I'm used to sort of carp doing strange things, but that took my breath away. I tell you, I thought, blimey, 20. I went on to catch a number of ones. And in the mid-80s, when I first had a video camera, I did video um, a sequence where I hooked a fish by the side of the ice on the top. It went under the ice. And I thrust the rod down the water. It was <laughs> taking line all the time. And where the... Uh, ice was sort of thin a further 20 yards in it broke sort of surface broke the ice anyway eventually got it back in it was like a 14 15 pound i mean it was, again it was a bizarre extraordinary circumstance to catch it a fellow came down and looked at it took some photos for me 
and uh, I picked up the video camera and you could see and I followed where this fish had gone because it had broken the cat ice at the edge you could see the line jagging and then this hole about 20 yards in and this is where our paths crossed with Graham Pullen on the last day of the 1990-1991 season the 14th of March 1991 at uh, one of the lakes I mentioned right at the start when Chris Yates and I found the Leany books and looked in there, Hawley Lake near Fleet. I concentrated on, on that place on the bottom and uh, had failed to sort of catch anything over quite a few years. Hooked a few but never managed to land any. But on the surface I suddenly found under these rhododendron bushes that the fish would hang about under there and on the last day of the season I uh, went and it was it would have been about two o'clock in the afternoon obviously we've got failing light about four or five o'clock and it was the conditions were good and there was there were fish coming up and taking in tight circumstances but I knew there was one or two spots I stood a chance of getting them out again a little nine foot rod anyway I saw this big and put it in close to it sure it took it a titanic struggle but I got it out and my mate who I rang because I had a mobile phone then, I've had a mobile phone since 1989. Um, I rang and he was going to France, he, he couldn't come. He was actually going to Dover, like that afternoon. So this is before Carp Talk started, so um, I rang the mail, the Angler's Mail used to do bits and pieces with, and ultimately they sent a local representative, who they knew, which was Graham, who lived close by, he was a very competent, uh, or he was 20 years ago, a competent photographer. And obviously, uh, you know, good, very good all-round angler. Anyway, Graham came over and took some video for me, because, of course, I have my video camera with me. Not the little things these days, but one about that size, about 15 inches long. He took some video, and also took some uh, very nice pictures as well. So there was a 30-pounder off the top in the winter. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it created a little bit of a stir, I suppose. Some people claimed it was the largest that had been caught off. I don't know whether it was. It was an unusual capture. So it's been, I mean, photo fish has just been it's fantastic. Geographically speaking, then, are there any specific types of waters that particularly lend themselves to surface fishing, and equally, others that very clearly do not? Yeah, I mean, to give yourself the best chance, obviously reasonably stock waters that aren't too deep, that once the warmth is in the water, it will encourage always the fish to be in the upper layers. Don't mean to say you can't catch them on the bottom, but it will encourage them. The lack of depth of water where warmth is coming through, and they'll be in generally in the comfortable area of the water, which is the middle to upper layers. <sighs> Though I've done it, I certainly wouldn't recommend it, the understocked huge lakes you're going to have to be mad or at a certain level of floater fishing in other words you know you've caught a lot and you want to go for the ultimate prize if you're at that level yeah sure try Raysbury <laughs> places like that which I have done and look back on it it's, it's madness but I mean since the, the floater fishing really sort of took hold in, in that sort of 70s and 80s period there's been so many carp waters created and there's so many fish in there in places now that it's just a 
entirely different set of circumstances. The level where I'm at now with floater fishing is that I don't need to catch another one. I don't need to catch fish all the time. I'm trying to purposely sort of find the better ones. And they needn't be in those huge waters with just a few fish. They can be in commercial fisheries. And uh, the problem then is getting your bait in front of the one you want to catch, you know. I'm one of these fortunate people from the year dot, because some people aren't. Some people do struggle full stop to catch fish. I don't know why, but I've never sort of been in that shit. The problem I've got is it's the ones I want to catch that I can't catch. And it's not sort of, I'm not an unlucky angler. I don't, I'm not a person that gets constant tangles or anything like that. And great, you know, 50 odd years in, for goodness sake. I must know something about the habits of them to get myself occasionally in good situations where uh, there's one thing I call, um, I mean, people have often been sort of sceptical of this, but I have been a number of times, and often it's inevitably been a big fish, where I've got into what I call the 10 second slot. I've done countless weeks of walking round the place, caught a number of fish, looking, 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 and suddenly you're in that zone. It's suddenly, they're there in front of you. You've got 10 seconds not to bugger it up. In other words, don't go tangled in the trees. Don't let the line somehow get caught round the reel. Don't cast on the fish's head. Everything has got to be in that final 10 seconds perfect. If you can get to that state, occasionally, because you can never guarantee fish, occasionally it will come right. If floating baits work so well, why is it then that so many waters currently ban them? We have an increasing bird culture on waters. The greatest enemy of really the boilie fishermen, them on the surface angler now, is in fact not the accepted water birds that have been around for years, you know, your mallards, your coots, and goodness knows what else. Seagulls. Seagulls. Absolute nightmare as they scavenge for food further from the shore, inland lakes, where there's food going in all the time, and it's been spotted in, where the surface anglers are there. Um, they've really honed in on there. There are more bird conservation people around than there are anglers. The inevitable happens on surface baits, if you're not looking, something happens, you'll hook a bird. Good grief, I've hooked enough of them myself over the years when I'm purposely trying, obviously physically, not to do it. Things like a pochard or a tufty will go into 15 foot of water and pick up a hook bait in the middle of the night and get itself hooked. Other places, and I can understand this, and it's a, to me a perfectly valid reason why you should ban surface fishing is people people start catching a few fish on the surface it gets around people go out buy a bag of mixer tesco bag of floating trout pellets pile it in some of it gets eaten lots of it drifts into the corners uh, you start getting rats appearing and you can understand people uh, saying like that obviously i try and be responsible when i'm surface fishing i mean when i joined the famous survey to express purpose of floater fishing the head honcho then, the late Pete Broxup, God rest his soul, had a conversation. He said, well, yeah, yeah, there is tickets, Chris. You know, he used to talk like that. Chris, yeah, there is tickets. He said, but uh, you're not then coming doing that service fishing here, are you? 
because you know you say it encourages the rat and people don't use it responsibly and I thought oh, well just maybe having a look and he says well wound your fish I used to be able to then fish when other people couldn't so Tuesday morning Thursday afternoon stuff like that and anyway he issued a ticket with, for me which in 1989 or wherever it was was £40 for a year it gave me uh, daylight access only uh, not to all the lake but uh, but most of the areas where, where it was good and he issued it on the understanding of don't let me see your surface fishing <laughs> and you know what in those, uh, I was there two or three years on and off, and he never did catch me. <laughs> now he never, he never actually saw me surface fish. Here's another classic place where dominated boily fishing on the bottom or particles. Nobody floater fished, and everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people, sort of laughed under their breath when I appeared there with silly little rods and reels and some mixer. And uh, once I started, I, I caught a few, but only little. Then when I started to catch one or two proper ones suddenly the attitude of quite a lot of the anglers changed where there would be a rod propped up against the bivvy which would be the marker rod was suddenly turned in to the floater rod and some of the members uh, caught far bigger carp than I did off the surface there with mixer fishing so yeah so the thing with with surface baits here it, it's mainly uh, at the request of owners who are looking after the waterfowl and inevitably bird will, will get caught on the, on surface baits um, obviously I just don't I'm not interested in places like that <laughs> On the subject of high protein baits which is boilies, can I now read a quote he had taken from the Angling Press earlier this year If you want to catch a British record for most coarse fish species these days or a specimen representative of that record you now need to fish high protein baits Not only that it also claims that as most users of such baits tend to do so on self-hooking bolt rigs, not only is the art of fishing other baits being lost as a result, but also the old, arguably more skillful techniques that went with them, the result being that a good proportion of today's coarse anglers are developing into unskilled specimen hunters with a high threshold of boredom, willing to wait as long as it takes just to catch that one special fish. How would you respond to that? Just because myself, me and countless other people that I know have served some kind of apprenticeship in fishing where the first fish that I caught weren't carp, I didn't target carp, I started off you know with roach and run and, and goodness knows what else and then float fished and used various techniques and various tackle through the years it's some kind of like badge on your arm now the other side to that is that involved in the day-to-day -day, like I have been for the last 16 odd years in the day-to-day upfront world of carp fishing through carp talk is that youngsters coming into the sport these days because of the availability of carp fishing and the size of the fish for that matter if you're starting off and you stand in front of a nipper, a, a 13, 14 year old and say right now look here is, we've got a, a centre pin reel here, we've got uh, some maggots and we're after an 8 ounce roach or do you want a boilie with a rod there and uh, and fish for a 20 pound carp? Most of them are going oh the bigger. So that and, and my apprenticeship was 15, 20 years before 
became really, really hooked on Carl. So it's not, it's not black and white. There's loads of grey in there. The high protein thing and the whole boily phenomena has come and gone over the years. I would say, if anything, here we are in um, you know, sort of 2012, where it's very much to the fore again now. But, of course, everything about six, eight years ago was blown apart by the fact of uh, uh, the advent of plastic fake imitation baits. And um, the first one being sweet corn. And I guess a, a massive turning point was Terry Glebby Oscar catching uh, a record carp on a piece of fake corn, uh, which he did. And uh, I remember the first time I ever saw Enterprise sweet corn, fake sweet corn. We were doing a junior fishing at Linear Fisheries for two or three days. And though I'd read about this, a young angler had a packet of... First time I'd seen it, I had a look and nothing much was happening and he put a bit on and just threw it out into nowhere on a hair rig one single piece of enterprise sweet corn on a hair rig and you know, just slung it out in the, in the lake blimey it raced away you know and we you know, came round it was properly hooked oh I look at it he was um, I think he was under the wing of Dave Lane but I was around and I looked at it and um, he put another bit on raced away right suddenly how many bits you got left there was about six or eight in the packet, right, right, and they were distributed. They caught fish and over fish. And, and what had been happening was sitting behind boilies and hemp and goodness knows what, and hardly anything was happening. So it does, in a way, sort of break that thing apart. Another aspect which you touched on, which is important, is the state that we find the UK angler in. And in increasingly in the last five years, certainly, We've had the non-working carp angler. We've had the recession carp angler, who either it's more advantageous to stop at home on benefit than it is getting a job, or are just too bloody lazy to get a job anyway, or they still live at home, or whatever, right? And there is, and I, I do tend to slightly go along with this, that they do wear them down. You sit there long enough, they'll come past you. One of the great things in all this fishing that I've mentioned, the reason I've lasted all this time is that I've, uh, a little but often, I've never tore the arse out of it. It's never been, it's been close, you know, the most dominant thing, and obviously I think about it a lot. But people have lost their house, they've lost their wife, they've lost their job, which is madness, absolute madness, just to go carp fishing. And I think doing what I do, and what a lot of people do, is going for a limited time, you're full on. I'll go, not tomorrow, I'll go next week. And I get there, you know, I've got to make it happen. <laughs> not, not sit there and, and a week on Tuesday, the fish might decide to come past you, you know, and pick up a bait or two. So I am, you know, maybe a, a little critical of that. The boily construction these days of vitamins and minerals and I mean those little balls a lot of them are better than anything they can get naturally in the water. Not, not the slightest doubt and this whole recognition thing brought by Fred Wilton in the 70s that a carp will become hooked on a, a bait that it knows is good for it has been largely proven. 
I mean, there's a happy cross-mix now. There's still a lot of particles used, but they've bled into one another. Still a very popular method is um, a carpet of particles with a single boilie fished over the top. Pop-up. Or a bit of, uh, bit of fake maize or, or something like that. Likewise, um, a single tiger nut over a bed of boilies. So it's, it's all become sort of jumbled up. I mean, most of the um, you know, really successful guys, the last thing they are is relaxed. I've seen it happen where, I mean, I, I've, I've done it myself, but I don't know whether I'm that keen as some of them where, you know, they were set up in a spot, nothing's happened for... They've done a fish there, they arrive at, I don't know, four o'clock in the afternoon, they've gone all the way around the lake, they've seen a few fish in this spot, right, we'll try here, put a bit of bait out of there, sit there, by seven o'clock, there's nothing happened, there's a load of action over there, just pack everything up, go, down the bank, everything on the barra, round the corner. Some of these blokes do this in the middle of the night, where they can hear fish crashing and rolling, somewhere else and they just pack the bed chair the whole lot up and think nothing moving in the middle of the, no of the night to do that number one thing find the fish so um yeah i mean that's a general sort of a answer to to that question they've all got their place and um there's a whole culture of, of companies some successful some not quite successful that have produced and are producing bait I mean, Richard Pace, one of the biggest, and arguably probably is the biggest, and certainly one of the most original bait companies in this country, their overseas business is unbelievable. I mean, they ship tons to Russia, for instance. You imagine a ton of bait, you know, that's a big pallet load of shelf life boilies. And um, to faraway places, I mean, Bob Baker, who, who heads up Richworth, I mean, he sold bait in America, Canada, everywhere throughout the world. And it is an amazing thing. It's something particularly that I've never been really that involved with, which is bait manufacture. Or I've been surrounded by people who are involved in it, and I've fortunately sort of um, really come off the back of them. I haven't done that much work myself. So there you have it, the case for surface fishing for carp. I'm actually already a convert, not that I do that much carp fishing myself, but when I do in the company of Graham Pullum when we're video making, we so far have steered well clear of the high protein bottom baits. And out of all the alternative techniques we've used so far, float fishing at short range and taking fish on bread or chum mixes at the surface of far and away being the most exciting. Also very productive too. Granted, we weren't chasing monsters. But we did pick up good numbers of fish, the best of which were certainly well into double figures. My thanks then to Chris Ball for putting his case, and also sharing his knowledge of the subject with us here.